My name's Dave Dorse. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the associate pastor. Both of our other pastors are traveling. You heard about Frank's uh, trip. They are driving right now to North Carolina for that mission trip. And his folks and his lovely wife and son are here, but he's out. Silver nails are out as well. Uh, so I'm preaching this week and next. So I love, we are getting into James, the bulk of it. My parents went to Hawaii. Speaking of vacations and not being there, uh, other people going. Uh, when I was in high school, they left, celebrated their 20th anniversary. My brothers and I stayed home. And when they came back, you know, they had their I Survived the Road to Hana t-shirts. I've never been, so apparently it's dangerous. And uh, so they, you know, they were telling us all these great stories. Just the story of getting there was, was really cool. But uh, they, they really wanted to show us their pictures. And so that was, you know, back in the 80s. So you had to go take your film to Walgreens or whatever. Well, we kind of heard the, uh, hey, did you take the film out of the camera already? No, did you? Back and forth. Eventually they realized they took a bunch of pictures with no film. For those, oh, listen to that. So terrible. Nobody, you know, we've all got our phones today. We don't even think about it. But you remember back in the day, right? It was very easy to take a lot of, it would even advance as if there was film in it. So they had no pictures from that vacation. Kath and I might sort of poke fun at that from time to time. (laughs) Annie, where's the film? Of course, I put all my pictures on my computer that crashed and didn't back it up, so I lost thousands. So I can't be too smug either. But there are a lot of things in this world that are useless if they're missing something inside of them that make them work, right? A car with no engine, a gun with no bullets, a smoke detector with no batteries, a flashlight with no light bulb. They may look great on the outside, but they're essentially useless to function how they're supposed to. Today's passage says that the Christian faith is like that. A person can be deceived into thinking that they are a saved, thriving Christian believer, but they are missing an essential element that makes their faith actually function. So let's turn to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Open and illuminate our minds as that we may, we may purely and rightly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we've understood, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Martin Luther, the great German reformer of the 16th century, based a lot of his theology on finding the central message of the gospel as being justification by faith alone, right? Which he felt the Roman church at the time had completely abandoned. It was shattering, startling good news for someone who had heard and obsessed that he had to do all kinds of stuff to be saved. He would stay up late at night in his cell when he was a monk, pouring out his confessions of sin, feeling like he had to do better and better until he finally understood the just shall live by faith. And so Luther had a hard time with the book of James because it puts such an emphasis on good works. In fact, he called it an epistle of straw and even questioned whether it should be in the canon of the Bible. But he also said this about faith. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done it and is constantly doing them. And thus, it is impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate burning and shining from fire. So even Luther, who was teaching radical grace, knew that it needed to be balanced. This passage is at the heart of the message of the entire book of James. Right? In the first chapter, we've already seen, James has hammered the point that Christians can't just be hearers of the word, but also doers, right? And then, as well as identifying the ways that we practice worthwhile and worthless religion. This is a logical next step in the discussion. And verse 14 sets out the big question, 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, can I say, hey, awesome, I'm a Christian, Jesus saved me, I believe all the right things, but I'm not going to worry about changing anything about myself. This new thing that I have going, it's not going to motivate me to help people or try to do good things. Well, as one of our recent songwriter theologians, Rich Mullins, said, faith without works, like a song you can't sing, it's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. If you know that song, stop singing it in your head. I don't want to lose you. But it's a great song. And so as we move into the text, uh, James gives two negative examples and two positive examples. And look, I I appreciate this book. I I really appreciate James as a writer, but that's kind of my job as the preacher, right? To come up with the illustrations. I mean, come on, James. You did all my work for me. Just kidding. Good illustrations here. So the first two are negative examples of faith. The callous, the indifferent, and the demonic. So the first one, verse 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? I think James is giving us here the easiest case or scenario that he can imagine. He's not talking about feeding starving people in other countries. He's not talking about addressing poverty or homelessness in an entire community. He's not even saying when someone comes up to you on the street asking for loose change. He's just using this very cut-and-dried example so that no one can complain, like, what, do you expect us to feed the whole world? You know, I never know if those people who come up to me have really a legitimate need. No, his example is someone at your church, a fellow believer, a brother or sister in Christ whose needs are legitimate. You become aware of them, and you're unwilling to help. If that is someone you know, but you don't actually lift a finger to help, you need to rethink how legitimate and real your faith is. True, spirit-filled Christians are moved to respond in tangible ways. This is just one illustration, right? This isn't the main thing, the only thing that you have to do or you're not a Christian. That's, that's just one example James gives. There's plenty of others. And, and look, I know it's easy to maybe sit there and go, you know, I haven't really helped out with one of those Tree of Life dinners that they do. And I know Operation Christmas Child's coming and they're going to ask me to pack a box and I don't like doing that. Or, you know, I didn't do the baby bottle thing. Or I, you know, they mentioned sponsoring a compassion child. We haven't gotten around to it. And Maybe I just don't love Jesus at all. And and hey, I don't want to stop you from appropriate self-examination about that kind of thing. 
And I don't want to totally let you off the hook, but don't stop doubting your salvation because of this right here. Search your life. Right? Search all of your life for fruit and evidence of caring for others and for the Spirit moving you to care for people outside of your family, outside of your immediate uh, needs. We know life has seasons, and we're all called to minister through our giftings. Find those ways. The second negative example he gives is of the demonic. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Are you pleased with your grasp of intellectual propositions of the gospel? Congratulations, you are now on the same level as the demons in hell. Right? They know that there's a God. They know a lot about him. They recognize Jesus faster than the disciples or most people when Jesus was on earth, right? But rather than that knowledge changing them and motivating them to good things, they shudder. They know it's true. They know they will be judged for opposing God, but they do it anyways. Their faith, in quotes, their faith, their understanding of who God is does not lead to right action. It leads to rebellion and wickedness. So, two negative examples of how faith doesn't lead to good works. But then, two positive examples. A patriarch and a prostitute. And Abraham, the patriarch, was a righteous person willing to take a life. Let's read that, verses 21 through 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Abraham, of course, was the father of the Jewish nation, nation, the first one called by God to establish the line of those who would become to be known as the Israelites or the Hebrews, right? And many of you remember the story. Abraham and his wife are, are well past child-rearing, child-bearing years when God finally gives him a child, a second child. But this is the child who will start the line, Isaac. And they're overjoyed, and Abraham believes all these great promises that God gives him, and then God says, take Isaac and sacrifice him to me. Kill him, right? And in total faith that was demonstrated by his actions, Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain, ties him to an altar, raises the knife, ready, fully intending to kill his precious child. This promised child that was Abraham's great hope. God, of course, stops him because he never intended Abraham to kill him, right? He was testing Abraham's faith and teaching him deep lessons of trust. 
as well as foreshadowing what he would be doing with his own son to accomplish salvation. But Abraham's faith in what God told him throughout his life worked itself out in true obedience. And now the second person, an unrighteous person willing to save a life, Rahab. Verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Do you remember Rahab? Uh, When God's people had left Egypt in the Exodus and 40 years in the desert, right? They get to the door of the promised land and they, they send spies into Jericho to scout it out. Joshua chapter 2 says that those spies somehow ended up at a prostitute's house. And they're about to be caught by the king's men. But Rahab, who was that prostitute, hides them. Because she had heard that the God of the Israelites was powerful. And she was pretty sure that he was going to take down the city. And so she saves these spies and, and smuggles them out. And she makes a deal with them, right? That if I spare you, you have to spare me and my family when you do come and destroy this city. And that's exactly what happens. And I I know, I've always thought, maybe to our ears, it just sounds like, okay, well, Rahab saw the writing on the wall, picked the right horse in the race, you know, picked the right side in the war. But the Bible goes out of its way to commend her. Unlike Abraham, she's an outsider to the faith, but she sees God's power. She believes that he is the true God and can do whatever he wants, and she acts on it. She even risks her life, but her life is saved. It's faith working out through her works. Okay, so four Good illustrations in this passage. And in between these examples, uh, we have James imagining a conversation. Did you catch that in verse 18? Maybe it's another church member. I'm not sure who this is. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. Right? Essentially, somebody's saying, hey, one of us can be a faith guy, a grace guy. One of us can be a a works guy. The implication, of course, right, is that we're both fine, just emphasizing one area. But James says, no way. You can't separate faith and works like that. My faith is proved by my works. Now, he says it a whole bunch of different ways. Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 20, uh, faith apart from works is useless. 24, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And 26, faith apart from works is dead. I'm no literary scholar, but repetition seems to be reinforcing and getting our attention. Right? James says that faith must have works to bear it out in about as many different ways as he can say it. He just keeps coming back to it. 
So the question that Luther and many others, maybe you, struggle with is, doesn't all of this contradict Paul's teachings on faith alone? I mean, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is pretty clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Do they contradict each other? No, they don't. Because neither James nor Paul would recognize a bogus faith, an empty faith as sufficient to save. Yeah, they're teaching from different angles. They're trying to correct different errors. James is teaching about the Christian life, what we call sanctification, right? He's correcting the people who believe in cheap, easy grace, who say, hey, I'm, I'm saved by grace and faith. I don't have to do anything. To which James says, essentially, you really need to examine that faith because I don't think it's a real faith at all. You're not really saved if you're not moved by the Holy Spirit inside of you to do things differently. Whereas Paul is correcting the people who say that salvation and heaven and right standing with God has to be earned by following the law and by doing good things. And so he absolutely insists that there is nothing you can do to earn or deserve your salvation. Jesus has done it all. And they're both right. And of course, Paul agrees with James because he goes on right after that Ephesians 2, 8, 9, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A very theological way to say all this is, can justification be divorced from growth and sanctification? In other words, can my being saved and justified before God the Father be accomplished if I never actually grow and mature in the Christian life? And the answer is no. When God gives you salvation, he gives you the whole package from beginning to end. They're interconnected, mutually beneficial. Faith informs and motivates action. Action matures faith. If the latter part is missing, maybe the earlier part is too. And it's not just Paul and James, this is throughout the scriptures. Jesus, Peter, John, all the writers of the scriptures of the New Testament emphasize this. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 1 John 2, 3 some of four and six. By this we know that we have come to know him, Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Listen, this is always going to be 
a balancing act, a, a tug of war maybe. You may see it. I've, I've even been in session meetings where we've talked about whether we're balancing, emphasizing works versus faith better. And, and one group of Christians is going to say, you people just exist in your heads. And you think that believing the right thing saves you and you never actually tell anybody to work for the Lord in obedience. And the other group responds with, you can't emphasize a bunch of things to do. You're trying to grow a bunch of Pharisees. We're saved by grace alone. And, but we should embrace that tension. We should teach both and live both. The Westminster Confession of Faith is very helpful here. Um, chapter 16, 2. I don't quote it very often, but this is this was outstandingly helpful. And, and you might want to even, if you've got your outline, you might even want to number the different ways that good works are helpful. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments, one, are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. By them, believers, two, show their thankfulness. Three, strengthen their assurance of salvation. Four, edify their brothers in the Lord. Five, become ornaments of all those who profess the gospel. Good works in believers. Six, silence the criticism of the enemies of the gospel. They also glorify God by, sh- by seven, showing that believers are the workmanship and creation of Jesus Christ because their aim is that holiness of living which leads to eternal life. We evidence our faith. We show our thankfulness. We strengthen our assurance, edify our brothers, become those who profess so that outsiders look on. I thought that was enormously helpful. Listen, the path to Jesus has always been the same. It will not change. Putting your faith in him as your Savior and Lord. Right? He is both the God who created all things with the Father and the Spirit, and he is the God-man who came to earth to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death. And so the combination of that sinless life and the atoning death and the resurrection, those were the things, that was the method that God used to take away our sins. If you accept those things by faith, believing them in your heart, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, you will be saved. We want to be very clear that salvation is through Jesus alone, if you add anything to that, you've changed the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. But as I wrote in the pastor's thought, Jesus, faith in Jesus, equals salvation plus works. The works come afterwards. From your salvation comes the new life. The life where the Holy Spirit changes your desires and affections and makes you want to embrace 
a life that pleases God and helps other people. As the confession said, we will do good works. They will be very natural fruit of this new life. Right? An apple tree produces apples. A mango tree produces mangoes. A saved life produces godly actions. We recognize there's still a battle waged with the old nature. Satan is not through with us. He's still going to pull us back. We're never perfectly obedient. We're always fighting selfishness and indifference. But our new nature has changed us. The Spirit helps us. And our love for God compels us. We've probably used this illustration before, but it's a good one. Imagine the person that you're falling in love with, that you want to spend the rest of your life with, you want to marry, and you announce to them, I love you so much that I want to marry you. But don't expect anything after that. I'm just going to do my own thing, or I'm going to sit on the couch and do nothing. Don't bother me. I hope that's cool with you. I got news for you. You're probably not getting married to that person because that's not true love, right? True love can't wait to express itself, to act on it. So it is with our relationship with God. Loving our neighbors, finding tangible ways to meet them and help them, participating in programs that feed the hungry, volunteering to help at church, bringing a meal for a family with a new baby, sitting with the lonely kid at school, going on a mission trip, giving up a Saturday for a service project, tutoring the failing students, babysitting for the overwhelmed parents, and a thousand other things like it show that we are becoming more Christ-like because we belong to Christ. We strengthen our own faith. We edify the believers around us. We silence the criticism of unbelievers and show beautiful lives motivated for the gospel and we glorify God. And all those who desire to live out their faith in obedience, love, and gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us said, amen. Take a minute to pray, and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord God, thank you for the book of James. Thank you for our study of it. And thank you that we continually teach and emphasize that we cannot take passages in isolation. We see them against the whole context of Scripture. And so as we have this very 
stark, pointed challenge to live out our faith, to walk in obedience, to do good works, to produce good fruit. We know that it's not isolated from the rest of Scripture that teaches us that our salvation, our right standing before you is through, solely through the work of Jesus on the cross. And so we embrace both of those truths and we bring them together and we thank you that we're saved by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit fills us and moves us and changes our desires and makes us want to participate in ministry and in helping others. Lord, we recognize the demands on our lives. We are busy. We are stretched, pulled a lot of different ways. Sometimes we have to say no to good things. But Lord, help us to look at our lives and say, do I reflect Jesus in the things that I do? Lord, bring us each an individual application of this passage that we would grow, that we would set uh, goals, that we would want to do more than we do, and yet at the same time rest in knowing that you've achieved our salvation. Thank you for our worship time. Thank you for those who are traveling. Give them travel safety, particularly the mission trip. And thank you for this worship time together. In Jesus' name, amen.